Good day, listeners. This is Michael Martins and your host of the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting today from sunny and hot West Kelowna, British Columbia. Today, we continue our investigative series into British Columbia's energy policy, sustainability, emissions, and LNG exports. Our guest today is David Hughes, a geoscientist who has studied <clears throat> the energy resources of Canada for nearly four decades. This includes 32 years with the Geological Survey of Canada as a scientist and research manager, where he headed unconventional gas and coal research. In 2008, David founded the Global Sustainability Research, Inc., a consultancy dedicated to research on energy and sustainability issues. His clients have covered the ideological spectrum from multinational energy companies, municipal governments, the Canadian federal government, and various environmental groups. Over the past decade, he has researched, published, and lectured widely, covering nearly 200 venues on global energy and sustainable issues in North America and abroad. His work has been featured in the popular press, radio, television, and other public media. He is a sought-after speaker on energy issues, as well as specific aspects including LNG exports, pipeline infrastructure development, scaling issues with alternative energy, and considerations for long-term energy security and sustainability. Today, we're going to wade into the murky waters surrounding the development of an LNG industry in BC. David, welcome to the Martins Critical Review. Oh, pleased to be here, Michael. Excellent. Thank you for your time. Uh, you've stated that the narrative surrounding British Columbia's LNG aspirations, which are supposed to contribute to reduction in global emissions by displacing cold fire electricity in China and elsewhere in Asia, lacks credibility if a proper accounting of emissions is undertaken. Can you provide some details on this matter? Uh, certainly, yes. I Basically, one of the big issues with producing natural gas is methane emissions. These are fugitive methane emissions uh, emitted from equipment, uh, the fracking process, and so forth. And if you look at the greenhouse gas potency of methane, compared to CO2, it's about 86 times worse than CO2 over 20 years, and about 34 times worse than CO2 over 100 years. So if you look at the, the full cycle emissions from producing the gas, to pipelining it, uh, to liquefying it, to putting it on a tanker and shipping it, regasifying it and then burning it. It turns out over 20 years, uh, it's about 15 15% worse than, than coal, best technology coal. And over 100 years, it's about 9% better. Uh, what industry and government quotes, of course, is a 100-year number, but really in terms of addressing the climate change issue, we have to look at the next few decades. And in fact, LNG would make emissions worse than burning best technology coal in China. And China's, you know, very good, but their coal burning fleet is, is quite new and it's much better than old technology coal. So if you look at old technology coal is about 33% efficient in terms of you know what you actually get for the coal you burn but best technology coal is about 45% efficient so that makes a big difference so it really depends on how you crunch the numbers 
Okay, and, and these methane emissions that you mentioned, uh, what are their point source? Is, is that coming out of the ground naturally or is that a byproduct of the methanol used in the fracking process? Where is that coming from? Well, it, it's basically it's introduced because of the production of the gas. So for example, if you frack a horizontal well, which is the way pretty much all of the uh, gas will be produced for LNG exports, uh, you, you pump in something like 5 million US gallons of water. Uh, you put in about 2,000 pounds per foot of profit, which is mainly sand, but it's also other other chemicals. And a lot of that comes back to the surface in kind of a first initial rush, which contains a lot of fugitive methane within it, which has vented most of it. Uh, atmospherically. Then you have, oh, sorry? That, that, that uh, is vented atmospherically? Yes. Okay. It, it, you know, some of the uh, fugitive methane is burned as a flare. And if you burn it, that's much better than venting uh, methane itself because methane is, is so much more potent. Uh, but there's also leaks in the transmission process. So, you you know, once you frack the well and you start producing gas, then you have a, a gathering pipeline to take it to a processing plant. Uh, you have all kinds of valves and connections along the way which leak fugitive methane. Then you put it into a, a large pipeline and ship it to the coast. And again, there's there's leaks along that process. Uh, put it on a tanker. In terms of moving it on a ship, uh, there's a, about 1% so-called boil-off uh, per thousand nautical miles traveled. So, uh, you know, some of that, that boil up, basically an LNG tanker is a big uh, thermos bottle and it's warming up. I mean, you when you liquefy it, you lower the temperature to about 160 degrees centigrade below zero. Uh, but it warms up, you know, as you take it on a two or three week voyage. And so you lose a little bit of that every day. And some of the LNG tankers regas reliquify that that boil off, and some of them actually use it as fuel, so it's not actually vented. But if you look at the, uh, you know, the entire process, there's about 3.3 percent of the total gas production is vented as fugitive methane, and that's really the Achilles heel of gas. You know, people are working on reducing that. And when I did my report on LNG, I assumed that, you know, the BC government has claimed that it will achieve a 45% reduction in fugitive methane by 2025. And I assumed that that would happen. But even when I did that, uh, you know, if you look at, at the, the latest product, latest forecast of gas production in BC by the Canadian Energy Regulator, and you assume that there's no LNG imports or exports, so you subtract LNG exports from that forecast, 
And if you add up all of the emissions, the oil and gas sector in BC exceeds the BC's 2050 target by 54%. If you add in LNG Canada, which is currently under construction in Kitimat, the emissions exceed the BC target by 128%. Or sorry, no, it's 160%. The BC target is 80% emissions reduction below 2007 levels. So, you know, in terms of internal emissions, it's catastrophic in terms of BC's emissions reduction target. And in terms of global emissions, LNG makes the whole global warming problem worse over the next two or three decades. So really, the, the, the whole narrative that LNG is a positive contributor um, in terms of reducing emissions is, is clearly not the case then. Right. I mean, if you wait 100 years, yes, it does reduce emissions compared to best technology coal by 9%. But, but really, we're most concerned with the next few decades. Sure. And do we actually have a hundred year supply of uh, gas in the ground? Uh, well, that's obviously debatable. It, you know, it depends on the price and uh, drilling and so forth. But it, I would say it's unlikely, uh, you know, given the rate that we're extracting it. So really, you know, the, certain, sorry, go ahead. No, certainly we're, we're extracting the cheapest and best of what's left of Canada's gas right now. Which also creates a problem, and I've seen some of your research, which is uh, 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 highlighting that fact that if we're removing the, the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak, uh, for export at some point in the future, uh, the domestic price of LNG or gas will be much, much higher and more difficult to extract, which could lead to some energy security problems uh, domestically for Canadians. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, there's still the, the offshore frontiers, the Arctic, that we haven't got to yet, but those are much more expensive sources of gas. So the price of gas is going to have to be a lot higher in order to uh, go after those. So by exporting all of the what's left of the cheap gas definitely means we'll be facing higher prices for sure and possibly short shortages in the long run right and I, and I guess the other element that needs to be quantified is whether this lng going to asia and perhaps china in particular is simply an addition of energy as opposed to a replacement of, of the existing coal infrastructure well, yeah, if you look at uh, at China, if they're going to build new electricity generation capacity, they've got a choice of best technology coal, which they're doing, uh, gas, you know, BC LNG gas or Russian gas via pipeline over land, which is much cheaper than, than BC LNG, or renewable energy. So... You know, BC LNG is basically just adding to the problem. Yeah, because there's no specific 
um, guarantees in place that we will be switching from the coal to the LNG as perhaps the government is, is alluding to or would like us to believe? Well, no, not really, because if you look at the estimates, the Canadian Energy Research Institute did a, an estimate of the break-even price for landing BC LNG in China, and it's about $8 per million BTU. However, if you look at, uh, at coal, it's about $4, right? And if you look at the actual spot prices of LNG in China, Right now, they're two dollars and sixteen cents. So if it if it costs you eight dollars to get it there, and all you can get for it is is two dollars and sixteen cents, then uh, doesn't make a lot of sense as an economic proposition. You know, granted, the pandemic has lowered prices, but even before the the pandemic, uh, spot prices for LNG in China were about between three and five dollars so it's still way below uh, break-even price and you know if China is not going to pay eight dollars per million BTUs if they can use best technology coal for four or if they can uh, use essentially the wind or, or the Sun you know via renewables so you know there's a lot of things that don't add up when you uh, look at the whole proposition. No, it certainly doesn't sound like it. Uh, and if, if we dial the clock back, I guess about 10 years ago, uh, which is where uh, the BC government originally conceived the, the export LNG concept, how did that price, uh, was that price economical at that point or were we still in this discrepancy between uh, a break-even price and a market price? No, the, the the prices were, you know, completely economic. You know, if you go back to when LNG Canada was proposed, you know, I think back to around 2013 or so, uh, LNG in Japan was selling at, you know, more than $15 per million BTU. So it made a lot of sense. I mean, even, you know, as recently as 2018 when the the Basically, LNG Canada confirmed their investment. Uh, you know, LNG was close to the $8 mark, maybe a little bit above. So it looked like it was, you know, at least going to be marginally profitable. And if you looked at some of the forecasts back then from Shell and others, it looked like, you know, things were, were going to keep increasing. But there's been a huge number of LNG developments around the world a lot of those have been mothballed and you know the price has crashed uh, it's basically there's a huge glut of LNG on the, the global market and will that ever be cleared I don't know you know LNG Canada won't be operational until 2025 and obviously they're hoping that the prices will go back up. But, you know, there's certainly no guarantee with the fallout of the coronavirus pandemic and, you know, everything else that's happening in the world. So, you know, plus the fact that it's a disaster in terms of of emissions and sure. global warming. I would say uh, 
doesn't make any sense. And, and where is this, uh, where's the origin of most of this oversupply geographically? Where's that coming from or is it, is it mixed? Oh, it's coming from Australia. There's a lot of new projects in Australia. It's coming out of the Middle East. You know, Qatar is one of the biggest uh, exporters of LNG. It's coming from the U.S. They've per- really ramped up LNG exports, you know, basically from frack gas in the eastern U.S. And there's there's quite a few more that are going to be uh, put on stream in the next little while. But LNG in the U.S. is a a disaster too. I mean, they're you know a lot of a lot of the LNG terminals have take or pay contracts, so you either you know take the gas or you uh, pay for it anyway. Uh, however, you know the, the LNG shipments have gone down a lot. You know companies are just not not able to make a profit. It makes more sense just to you know do do the pay part of the take or pay contracts. Oh, wow. And do we have an idea what the cost or the break-even number is out of uh, a jurisdiction like Qatar? Uh, probably way cheaper. Basically, they're exporting, you know, very cheaply produced gas from the North Par field. Uh, and they're exporting it to Europe, which is, a, you know, sort of trip. So I would I would say their break even is quite a bit lower than eight dollars. You so, know, if you look at the uh, the price of LNG in Europe, at the main ter- terminal, it's, it's down in the same ballpark. You know, two to three dollars a million BTUs. Okay. So given that brief analysis on the global situation, and we you know we mentioned that uh, the Kitimat terminal coming online for 2025, which you know, really is right around the corner. Um, save some major changes in the supply, it doesn't sound like that price is going to be moving uh, off those lower levels. Well, I, I expect it'll move up a bit, but we're talking about drupling it, you know, to make economic sense. And I, I would, you know, be skeptical, let's put it that way, that that will happen. You're not, uh, developments. You're not placing any bets on uh, it moving, uh, doing a quadruple from this point, it sounds like. No, absolutely not. Uh, and you've also spoken about ending the growth paradigm. Um, can you explain that a bit more in detail in relation to this subject? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, economics is based on growth. You know, political aspirations are based on growth. But if you look at the correlation between growth and energy consumption, it's almost a perfect correlation. GDP goes up, energy consumption goes up. The so-called emissions intensity, uh, emissions per dollar of GDP or energy consumption per dollar of GDP is improving somewhat, but the, uh, the correlation is perfect. You know, the only time there's really been a significant decrease in global emissions recently is the 20, 2008 recession. GDP went down, uh, emissions went down, energy consumption went down. 
but they're all back up. So, you know, 2019 was, was a record in terms of emissions. I mean, people talk about all the great developments in renewables, but in fact, if you look at what renewables are doing, they're only reducing the rate of expansion of growth in energy. And fossil fuels are providing about three quarters of the growth in energy consumption. Renewables are providing about 25%. So, you know, so far, renewables haven't caused, you know, one iota of absolute reduction in fossil fuel consumption. So, you know, you fold that out and uh, we have to be radically reducing emissions. So what is that going to take? It's going to take a, a change in the growth paradigm, unfortunately. And that's going to happen one way or another because fossil fuels are non-renewable. They're finite. Yes. Uh, and so if, we move, if we move into a uh, more of a specific focus on British Columbia, uh, it would appear that BC Hydro, at the request of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, um, and to meet targets of the, their clean BC plan, they're attempting to create an artificially low hydro rate for upstream oil and gas processes. Um, and will electrifying BC's oil and gas sector allow the province to meet its climate targets? Uh, no. Uh, those percentages that I quoted basically assumes a certain amount of electrification of the upstream uh, production. You can only do so much of that. Uh, you know, there are some electric fracking rigs in the Permian Basin, but basically the electricity for those is generated by, you know, wasted gas basically on site. Uh, so they couldn't use BC Hydro power for that. It doesn't make any sense to build transmission lines to a drill site when you only need it for a few weeks. It's, you know, it's pretty high cost. Um, electrifying the, the gas plants that are currently using on-site electricity generation from gas, that's a possibility. And I assume, uh, you know, some of that would happen to the extent possible. And even after you factor that in, uh, you know, LNG Canada plus the rest of oil and gas production in BC still exceeds the 80% reduction target by 2050 by 160%. And, and I guess that uh, we're at a, at a point now too where the uh, hydroelectric generation is actually more expensive than natural gas. Uh, is that correct? Oh, absolutely. You know, if you look at the industrial rate for electricity uh, from BC Hydro, it's about $60 per megawatt hour. And if you look at what you could produce it for from natural gas on site, it's about $15. So, you know, I mean, BC Hydro is making a profit with that $60 per megawatt. But still, natural gas-fired electricity generation on-site is far cheaper. So it really sounds like uh, the Site C proposal then, which is supposed to be electrifying uh, the oil and gas industry, 
uh, is a bit of a folly in terms of economics as well as emission targets. Well, no, certainly if you can use the electricity from Site C, uh, it will reduce, you know, on-site natural gas generation. But, you know, last I heard, CAP is is trying to say that uh, the price that BC Hydro charges for that should be equivalent to what it costs them to generate it from natural gas. And if you did that, you know, that means all the users of the BC Hydro system are going to have to pick up the tap for redu reducing the electricity that much. So there's no free lunch, unfortunately. No, I mean, that just that's uh, tantamount to a subsidy for the oil and gas sector, um, which at one, you know, on one side is supposed to reduce the emissions, but clearly it's not, as you've indicated, we're, we're in a, in an over emissions, uh, we're, we're certainly not going to meet our targets according to the, uh, according to your, your calculations. Oh, definitely not. And so what's, what's the, the overarching result of such a policy then? Um, that's to me sends a bit of a false signal in terms of the viability of those projects and certainly creates a, a false economy for uh, the, the continued use of the fossil fuels. Well, let's put it this way. We, we run on energy. And, uh, you know, Canada is fortunate to have a lot of hydropower. But still, you know, roughly two-thirds of our energy comes from fossil fuel. Uh, and GDP and energy consumption are very tightly correlated. So, um, unfortunately, we're going to have to look at some sort of a degrowth scenario. You know, not relying on 3% GDP growth every year. And that's, uh, you know, that's very unpopular with politicians and for most of the people that vote for them. But, you know, as I said earlier, ultimately, we're dealing with a non-renewable resource. And ultimately, we're going to have to reduce and really look carefully at our options. I mean, people, you know, some people think that windmills and solar panels are a simple swap out uh, of fossil fuels and we can keep on growing. You know, that's kind of the popular myth. However, uh, if you look at, at windmills and solar panels, they're basically, some people call them fossil fuel extenders. You know, the manufacturing process, the mining of the raw materials that go into them, the fact that a solar panel maybe lasts 30 years, windmill maybe 20, and they have to be replaced, uh, which means maintaining a, a fossil fuel infrastructure at some point. There's, you know, they really can't generate enough energy to fuel the mining and processing processes that manufacture them. So, uh, you know, the other thing is, that with windmills and solar panels, we're dealing with intermittent energy. And, you know, people are used to having a, a constant supply of electricity. 
and to do that, you have to have either storage, battery storage. You know, hydropower is a really good uh, storage medium. Uh, or you have to have dispatchable sources like natural gas that you can bring on quickly. So there, there's you know, some... Self- Sorry. So it sounds like there's there's two there's two aspects there. You know, one one is the reduction of our economic economic growth paradigm, and then the other is you know perhaps the 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 identification that some of these renewables are more of a band aid solution. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, uh, it seems that some of those technologies, as you mentioned, with, with that have that lifespan, uh, the recyclability of those materials is also in question. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. You know, certainly, you know, things like steel can be recycled. You know, blades of wind turbines are a big issue. I don't think that they can be. Um, but, you know, even recycling takes takes energy. Yes. And, you know, the other, the other thing is, you know, I live on the West Coast and I there's a really great site called Renewables Ninja. And basically you can use that site. And it basically has all of the, the global 2019 weather information. So you can uh, click on any place on the planet and it will tell you the capacity factor, you know, over an entire year of, you know, a thousand what wind uh, PV panel huh. or a wind turbine, and if you look at the west coast of BC, you know where I live, uh, the capacity factor of solar in the winter is only about six percent. You know the sun doesn't shine; it's cloudy, uh, but it's when you need the most power. You know in the summertime, right, right about now, or particularly in June the capacity factor may be 25%. But still, you're, you know, you're paying for 100%. You get 25% at the best. The overall capacity factor is about 14%. If you look at wind, uh, you know, the west coast of BC is not great for wind power. But if, you know, if I put an 80 meter high Vestas wind turbine in my front yard here on the west coast, it would have an average capacity factor over the whole year of 6%. Wow. You know, whereas a, you know, a gas plant can easily run at 80%, you know, a coal plant can run at, you know, 60 to 70%. Nuclear plant typically runs at 90%. So, you know, we've got to be realistic when we look at alternatives to uh, what we're using now. And, you know, I, I maintain use a lot less is number one. You know, maximize efficiency, minimize the need for long distance transport. Uh, there's a lot of low hanging fruit so that we can reduce our consumption a lot. But, you know, we, we, we there's no silver technology bullet, unfortunately. Yeah, that was going to be my, my next question is, is do we see something on the horizon in terms of a renewable? which will be better than what we have presently? Well, certainly they're making improvements, you know, but there's theoretical maximums. And if you look at wind, I mean, you need to have a windy location, you know, predictably windy. 
And if you look at, at southern Alberta, is a really good location. I don't know if you've been down there recently, but it's packed with windmills. If you look at the Midwest of the the U.S., it's also, you know, very good location. But, you know, if you look at a poor location like the West Coast of B.C., it doesn't make any sense. And if you have a good location that's a long ways away from, you know, points of use, then you're looking at very expensive transmission lines. Yes. So again, it, you, you have to pragmatically and objectively look at, you know, the full cycle in, in terms of your, your options. And uh, the, the biggest option, the, the cheapest option is used a lot less. Right. Right. And, and what about uh, tidal power? I know we've, we've seen some sort of upstart companies over the years that have, have tried. Is, is that just not, uh, feasible because of the, the the complex conditions in the ocean in terms of corrosion and uh, the life. Uh, yeah, I mean it, it's a, it's a niche source. You know, could be useful in some locations, but you're right. I mean, you know, if you look at what's happened in the Fundy Basin of eastern Canada, which has you know had some of Canada's biggest projects there. I think most of those are shut down. As you say, corrosion, uh, you know, just basic economics. I, you know, I suspect that that may, we may beat that. But it's, a, you know, it's a tiny part of the puzzle when we look at the amount of energy we're consuming today. So what's the, obviously you've mentioned, you know, a reduction in the amount of, of consumption as a paramount factor. Uh, is is there a number two in your mind there in terms of uh, replacing the emissions of, from fossil fuels, uh, but still providing consistent, reliable power? Well, I think you know, uh, yeah, reduction is number one. I I think personally, I think we're going to be using fossil fuels for a long time. Uh, we have to use them at a radically reduced level. And, you know, basically backup for renewables is key number one use, in my view. Uh, you know, maximize building efficiency, insulation, all of that. And ultimately, the population of this planet is going to have to come down. Uh. I mean, you know, we have all of these developing nations uh, which are growing in population fairly fast, aspiring to first world levels of, of energy consumption. And unfortunately, you know, all of this is based on non-renewable fossil fuels for the most part. So uh, not going to work, folks. We have to uh, come up with a better plan. And so let's, if we look then at, transportation uh you know we're seeing the the proliferation of electric or hybrid vehicles and clearly that will put more demand on our electrical generation capacity um what are your thoughts on that i mean it's it's that is going to really increase the the electrical requirement that we presently have well yeah where is it going to come from you know we we've seen the protest over Site C, 
uh, you know, has seen radical cost overruns at Site C at Muskrat Falls. Uh, you know, there's a lot of places we could build more dams, but they take a long time to build, and I'm not sure about the enthusiasm of of the public for having that happen. I mean, you know, they're not exactly environmentally friendly. Uh, you know, everybody having an electric vehicle and you know, business as usual going on the way we have it right now. Um, no, I don't think so. I think we have to look at much more efficient ways of getting around. So much more efficient mass transit is a key. Um, you know, certainly people like me that live in rural communities are, are going to have to, you know, probably have a vehicle of some sort uh, to be viable. But you know, I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, and you know, the concept of suburbia and everybody having a couple of cars is, you know, is obsolete if we're going to deal with climate change. So there's uh, some major, major shifts in in people's philosophies in terms of uh, their lives that needs to occur uh, to make this a reality. Yes, absolutely, and. Let, let me be clear, it, it it will happen one way or another. You know, we can uh, be forward thinking, look at our alternatives, uh, make a plan, uh, you know, reduce consumption, look at alternatives to replace fossil fuels, and ramp down. You know, we can ramp down gradually and non-chaotically. Or we can keep the pedal to the metal and hit the wall and supply, and then what happens will be much more chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's what, what we're faced with. Those are the alternatives. And, you know, so for me here in, in the Okanagan, you know, it's one of the fastest growing uh, regions in terms of population in, in British Columbia. Um, and, you know, we have tremendous amount of sunlight here not so much in the, in the depths of the winter, we get a little, we get some valley cloud, uh, which obscures the sun. Uh, but in terms of, again, one of these potential solutions to, uh, to mitigate this problem, if there was a, a building code amendment or a tax incentive for people to get some solar onto the roof or into the backyard, wouldn't that sort of micro generation um, at a community level assist this, this issue? Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, we should do all of that that we possibly can. But, but you know, you have to be realistic. You know, I mean, I, I live in a fairly isolated location. And I've learned that by, you know, I, I use wood heat as a backup. But I've learned that with wood heat, uh, I can live a pretty good life, you know, computers, uh, fridge, and so forth, on about four kilowatt hours a day. If you look at the average person in Victoria, they're consuming about thirty kilowatt hours a day. Wow! And there's you know there's two of us in this house, so you know that's low hanging fruit, and and you're you're still in the twenty first century. You know if you turn the power off, well, then you're in the eighteenth century. Right. 
and but, so you know, that, that's the, that's the scope of, of reduction that we can have. And are, are you using uh, renewables at your location? Or are you relying on grid power? I rely on grid power. So you've, you've just, you know, I, uh, you've taken a conscious effort then to minimize your consumption and, and utilize high efficiency appliances and, and that, uh, that type of thing. Uh, yeah, right. You know, we have a, a fairly unreliable supply of power, particularly in the winter with windstorms and so forth. Power can go down for a day at a time. So I have, you know, generator backup and, uh, wood heat backup but for the main part when the grid is up I use a heat pump okay uh, for for heat and you know just burn wood when the power is down interesting uh, in your July 2020 report uh, which you authored entitled uh, BC's carbon conundrum uh, you highlighted several key issues and concerns um, in terms of developing the LNG uh, market in BC. Uh, can you quantify the land disturbance and water consumption impacts uh, for that proposed LNG production? Well, yeah, I mean, I looked at basically uh, the, the Canada Energy Regulator has approved three 40 year export licenses for LNG projects. So, LNG Canada, wood fiber in, in Squamish, and uh, Kitimat LNG in, in Kitimat. And if you assume that all of those get built and they run for their 40-year lifetime, so say Kitimat LNG starts in 2030 and runs to 2070, the land disturbance over that period of time would go from 5% in the BC Montney Formation where most of that gas would come from to 20%. So we quadruple it, quadruple the footprint of you know, well pads, pipelines, seismic lines, processing plants, and so forth. And we would multiply the number of wells needed by a factor of 10. And you know that, that assumes that the gas is there to be economically produced. Uh, even even if we didn't uh, export any LNG, we're still going to have to drill a lot of wells, you know, just to meet uh, Canada's domestic needs. So, you know, the concept of, you know, ramping up drilling to export LNG for likely very limited gain uh, doesn't make any sense, you know, in the longer term. We're dealing with a finite resource. For sure, and certainly with the royalty structure that's in place, it, it doesn't seem that there's a real benefit for the, the average citizen or taxpayer uh, in BC. Well, you know, I suspect that the royalty take would go up somewhat. But, I, I, you know, I did an analysis of, of the royalty take from 2000 uh, to 2018 in my report. And if you look at it, the the actual total price of royalties has gone down, or you know the actual amount that's taken in by government of royalties has gone down by 84 percent 
since 2005. And the production of gas has doubled, right? So the the production per unit, the production per thousand cubic feet of gas, the royalty per thousand cubic feet of gas, has gone down from over two dollars in 2005 to about 16 cents wow. in 2018. I mean, if we crank up production and it stays at 16 cents, sure, uh, the citizens will get a bit more. But because we're consuming the cheapest of what's left of, of BC's gas, that means that you know the BC citizens are going to pay more in the future for for their own gas use. So, you know whether there's any net gain is questionable. And so that that reduction in the royalties, can you quantify that in a dollar amount? What what is that uh, decrease? Uh, yes, I don't have it right in front of me, but uh, it's in my report. It, it, it must be a significant number if we're if we're off eighty four percent. Yeah, it is. Just uh, uh, and and part of that would be uh, a result of the decrease in price. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I just got it here. Uh, it, the royalty take in 2005, which, which is a peak year, yes, was about two billion. Okay. The royalty take in 2018 was about 400 million. Was not even less, about 350 million. 350. So I mean, we're 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 going from something which has a net benefit to society to something which is probably not uh nowhere near nowhere near uh that level of course well and yeah and you're also uh you know you have to add in the environmental impact the fact that we're selling a non-renewable resource and the fact that we're probably going to need this resource at some level for decades to come yes so you have to look at the you know the full cycle picture which is not being looked at unfortunately yeah, uh, one of my personal concerns is, is the water use um, in in our LNG production for the fracking. Um, can you uh, expand on that? Well, if if you look at the average water consumption of a fracked well in Northeast BC in 2019, it's about five million U.S. gallons, or something like twenty. 20 million liters per well of uh, per well and that you know only about 30 percent of that comes back to surface and it's highly contaminated so it has to be disposed of uh, if you look at you know the, the total build out if you build everything out all three projects with 40-year licenses if you uh, built that out after after 2030, when they're all operating, it would consume uh, the equivalent of the consumption of the city of Vancouver for about two months. Oh wow! Uh, you know that that's how much water is being used. And, you know, maybe the water's there. I mean, it's not it's not arid like the Permian Basin in Texas, but nonetheless, there's no free lunch, and a lot of that has to be uh, 
disposed of in disposal wells, which is also an expense. So and, and the other issue, of course, is that we're taking surface water, which can maintain its, its uh, uh, cyclical nature within the water cycle, removing it from that and, and in either injecting the waste into a, an injection well or it's trapped within these formations deep in the ground. Uh, you know, certainly the, the, water, the water usage in the city should come down, but at least that water is returning to the sea and, and, and coming back as rain, whereas this, this water, which is going to be consumed, is, is gone for, you know, certainly generations. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's, we, we saw those 2017-2018 uh, very dry summers that we had here in BC. Uh, you know, we've seen some droughts elsewhere in the world and, and uh, the security of, uh, of our water resource is, you know, probably equal to our uh, energy uh, security, I would imagine. Absolutely. Without water, uh, we don't have anything. Right. So, and, you know, as you say, that water is taken out of the, uh, the water cycle. For a long, long time. And has have there been any reports or any any research into the I guess the upwelling of that water uh, within those fracked wells to, to return into the water cycle, or, or is that an un, completely unknown at this point? Well, I, those are injected into very deep formations, you know, thousands of feet below surface. So I suspect that that. You know, it's, it's unlikely that that water is going to return to the surface. In in anything uh, resembling a human lifespan. Oh yeah, or many human lifespans. Yeah. Uh, so if it, if it did, there, oh, if it did, there'd be a big problem because it's highly contaminated. Right. I, although I suppose there'd be some filtration occurring through the rock formations as it would rise to the surface. But again, we don't even know if if that situation exists that it would. Uh, move to the surface or just remain somewhere trapped. Yeah, I would. I doubt it would happen. For yeah, the foreseeable future. Yeah, and then what about job creation and employment opportunities? The the government seems to tout this as one of the the most important factors of this new industry that they're trying to develop. Well, yeah, I covered that in my report too, and certainly is true that the construction of you know, the coastal gas link pipeline and the terminal itself will create thousands of jobs. Uh, but those are temporary. You know, those are maybe over two to three years. Yes. And if you, you can go to the LNG Canada website and, you know, I had 500 jobs in my report, but lately LNG Canada is saying 300 to 450 permanent jobs. Uh you know, at the terminal itself. And you may have a few dozen jobs on the pipeline, and then you'll have, you know, jobs for people uh, drilling the wells. But, you know, if it boils down to a couple thousand jobs in total, uh, you know, to me, that that's about it. So, you know, the vast quantities of jobs I don't know where, it, well, you know, the, the other thing is economists have what they call input-output models. So they would say, well, for, for every one job in the oil and gas business, we have, you know, five jobs for people in re retailing and service industries and so forth. 
Sure, that, that's but direct. Yeah, direct employment, no. Right. And you know, again, we have to look at the environmental downsides. You know, the whole picture. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, to, to me, that's, uh, you know, now if we're getting down to 350 or 400 jobs at, at the terminal, I mean, that's not really, that's not going to revitalize a community like Kitimat and certainly the, the negative impacts, um, you know, other environmental impacts that will occur locally and globally certainly don't justify 350 or 400 jobs. No. You know, I mean, it, it may, it may in fact uh, revitalize Kitimat because population there is not that big uh, however the downside for all the rest of the people in BC and Canada and the planet uh, you know just don't make make sense doesn't add up in, in my view yeah and don't don't we have another set of emissions um, which are focused at that LNG terminal is that is that am I correct there Uh, right. Yes. I mean, if you look at the in, the environmental approval for LNG Canada, the emissions there are about 3.96 megatons per year. And that's assuming that this is the most efficient LNG terminal on the planet. You know, that's considerably lower than, you know, the average of all of the other LNG terminals in the world. But assuming that they do that, and I, I did assume that in my report, uh, it's you know rounded off at four, four megatons per year, whereas the upstream emissions are about nine megatons per year. That's the emissions in BC. Right. So that doesn't that doesn't count the emissions from burning the gas in in China. The actual or, or moving it by by tanker to China and so forth. Right. Now, um, I have seen some mention that uh, you know if, if the Paris Climate Accord uh, continues ahead as it is, um, is there an opportunity for BC to offset some of the some of these emissions with uh, the carbon credit trading system, or, or is that a fallacy as well? Well, uh, if you look at you know what what is BC going to use to trade? You know, if you look at BC's forests. They're net emitters. You can look at the emissions data from the BC government. And BC forests, you know, emitted recently because of all of the fires that we've had, uh, about the same amount of, of net increase in emissions as the oil sands. Wow. So what what is BC going to use to trade? You know, BC forests have been net emitters since about 2002. You know, they were they were sequestering before that. That's interesting because clearly the the old growth forests are a, a net emitter through decay processes. But I would have imagined that given the um, you know million plus hectares of forest that we lost in 17 and 18, um, that those younger trees which are being established should be a net sink of carbon and you're saying that's not the case well they may they may be eventually but if you look at the data um certainly hasn't happened yet uh, 
So it's probably still in a decomposition phase of the standing dead timber and, and uh, the, the, the aftermath. So we may, until that forest has regained sort of site dominancy, we're probably still in a, in a net emissions uh, uh, scenario then. Well, yeah. And uh, if you're going to be selling offsets, you're going to have to have some credible data to show that you're actually uh, reducing right. emissions. And if you look at the most recent available data from the BC government, which hopefully is credible, uh, it, you know, it's a net emitter, so there's nothing to trade there. You know, BC is going to have to buy credits from somewhere else. Yeah, that's uh... you know, and and there is a whole question about you know emissions trading being a bit of a shell game. Sure, of course, of course. So fundamentally, then it doesn't sound like LNG, the LNG export market for British Columbia and Canada, it, it, it's neither environmentally sound nor is it an economically sound uh, plan. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I mean. If Canada has any aspirations of meeting its emissions reduction target, LNG doesn't make any sense. Ramping up the oil sands in the hope of generating money to reduce emissions doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, we need we need a credible plan. And we sure. don't have one. So if if uh, David Hughes is um... Uh, given the position of the energy czar of Canada, uh, what's your strategy to move forward uh, to get us out of this this conundrum that we're in? Uh, we're going to have to ramp down oil and gas production. There's no question. You know, cutting out exports first, uh, you know, face the music in terms of the money that that generates. You know, the energy sector is about 9% of, of Canadian GDP. Uh, it's only about 4% of BC. Uh, so, you know, we're going to have to face face the music. You know, there's no free lunch. Uh, we're going to have to be extremely aggressive in terms of uh, efficiency, mass transit, you know, reducing consumption. A lot. We're going to have to, you know, be extremely aggressive in renewables, you know, wherever possible. Um, you know, we really need to to look at every option because it's a, an incredibly daunting challenge. And you know, current rhetoric is just not not helping. I mean, if you look at, you know, Canada's pledged. 30% below 2005 by 2030 emissions reduction. If you look at 2018, which is the latest year for which data is available, Canada is down only 0.14% since 2005. Meaningless. And BC is BC is up by 5.65%. And John Horgan is telling us that, you know, BC is a leader in emissions <laughs> reduction. So... We need, we need to cut the rhetoric and, you know, get on with the facts. So when you mentioned the increasing efficiency, is that uh, an economic 
it cannot create an economic engine in terms of, uh, you know, made in Canada solutions uh, and ingenuity. Is that, is that a possibility? Well, absolutely. It's going to create a lot of, a lot of jobs. You know, it's, it's going to take, you know, rebates and different things, you know, probably much higher cost energy. So, you know, the carbon tax is going to have to go way up uh, to really incentivize people to do that. But certainly it's going to create a lot of jobs in order to do that. So, I mean, it, it sounds like to me, some of the, some of the government investment into the, the, the status quo, which, you know, would include pipelines and, and the, the LNG uh, terminals. Um, to me, it sounds like that, or a portion of those funds would be far better spent uh, at the universities or private institutions in terms of research and development for some of these new technologies. Yeah, definitely. You know, and and incentives and in rebates for citizens to reduce their their consumption. Uh, you know, spending it on growing oil and gas production infrastructure is 180 degrees counter to where we should be going, unfortunately. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm very concerned about Canada's recovery after COVID. I mean, it doesn't seem like there has been really any foresight in terms of how we get Canada back to work, um, how we start to pay for the massive debt, which uh, Mr. Dressup and his band of buffoons has uh, incurred here during this process. And, uh, you know, certainly bailing out failing uh, oil and gas companies isn't how our tax dollars should be spent. Um, and, you know, given, given these challenges that we have, um, we really need to be looking at solutions which can't made in Canada solutions, which can be exported to the world to create some new economic opportunities um, instead of being the, uh, you know, the, the, the typical resource extraction model that we've followed since inception. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, I don't necessarily think it's going to be, you know, smooth sailing going forward in any event. Uh, we're going to have to basically accept a little bit of pain along the way. And, um, you know, the concept of pain is politically unpalatable, to say the least, because politicians operate on a four-year election cycle and they have to promise the sky, basically. But, uh, yeah, we got a very serious problem here. And, uh, you know, we can either address it, you know, head on and, and, you know, make the pain much less and, and gradual over the future. Or we can just try to keep going and, uh, face of collapse you know which is you know the other alternative yes yes so hopefully we'll be somewhere in between yeah and I, and I don't think that we'll necessarily get get it right the first time you know there may be several iterations of what this new paradigm looks like until we get it right and i think we have to be understanding and accepting of that uh but we certainly can't continue to act like children spoiled children and continue in the status quo and expect, you know, doing the same thing and getting a different result. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So David, if you could go back in time and, and speak with yourself as a young man at 18 to 20 years old, uh, what uh, advice would you have for that person? 
Well, I you know I'd say uh, understand the issues and the uh, alternatives and lobby. <laughs> you know, uh, be vocal. Uh, organize your life. I mean, you know, a lot of young people are doing that. I mean, you know, they they certainly understand that we have you know, big problems. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of ways to really re- reduce your footprint. But, but also, you know, understand the issues and uh, be vocal, you know, as well. And younger people vote for politicians and politicians, you know, are, are normally followers when it comes to voters, not leaders. And, uh, you know, so young people can make a big difference. You know, right now we're hearing a lot of, you know, worn out rhetoric, trying to stoke the growth paradigm because that's what people seem to think that they want. But uh, they really have to understand the magnitude of the problem we're facing. Well, I don't think we've really uh, developed what that new paradigm might look like. Uh, you know, I certainly don't think it's uh, Barry Sanders' world of, uh, you know, that kind of kumbaya, socialistic, uh, semi-Marxist type of society. There needs to be a, a different, different outlook, uh, a time for something new, some, some, new, some new fresh ideas to come forward and, and uh, that, we can, that we can all embrace and... and uh, uh, move forward with. Yeah, I, I, you know, we just have to get started. You know, we know some obvious uh, things to stop doing, like expanding oil and gas production infrastructure. Yes. And, you know, working on efficiency and things like that. So let's get, let's get started. You know, I, every year I look at the, uh, you know, the emissions from the previous year and they keep going up. You know, except in 2008, they were flat for a little bit, uh, you know, around 2016, 2017, but they haven't actually gone down significantly. You know, coronavirus is certainly going to drop emissions for a bit, but they're already coming back if you look at, at China, you know. So, um, you know, I, we need to implement aggressively as possible some of the things I've outlined. Yes. And we need to start seeing real progress in, in dropping emissions. So far, it's mostly just talk, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, David, uh, any personal fears of yours moving forward? Uh, well, other than, uh, you know, collapse of civilization as we know it. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I... I uh, make a point of enjoying life, but I also make a point of being informed. Yes. And, you know, I have a, a great life. I'm a baby boomer. I, I surfed the fossil fuel blowout. You know, population has tripled since I was born. I mean, this is just a, a huge one-time blowout. So, you know, I've had a a great life, but I'm trying to educate people and uh, 
you know, do what I can, you know, while enjoying what life I have left. But. For sure. And, and you mentioned, you know, the, the complete collapse of civilization. I mean, some people feel that that might be necessary for us to make this shift uh, into the new paradigm. Um, what are your thoughts there? Well, that, that's one end, end of the spectrum. You know, that's the spectrum if we keep pedal to the metal until the wheels fall off, right? Um, and all, you know, if you look at, at civilizations over time in the past, they've all collapsed, you know, at some point. Usually, you know, they may last 250, 300 years. You look at the Roman Empire. Uh, you know, I think we have, basically we built this operation out to the planetary scale, which is civilizations earlier only occupied part of the planet. So now we really have the limits of the planet to deal with. Uh, but I, you know, it, it, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be tough. And there's some people that say it's impossible. But uh, you know, I mean, I'm an optimist. You know, we we have unprecedented access to information, and uh, you know, we know what's happening. I mean, anybody that cares to pay attention and not listen to rhetoric. So I think, you know, I, I think there's hope. It may, may be slim hope, but uh, we got to get started because if we, if we don't, then eventually there'll be no hope. And, you know, we're looking at the, the collapse scenario. Yes, yes. Uh, well, David, this has been uh, very informative. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, if listeners would like to learn more about your work, uh, where would we direct them? Well, there's, I mean, you know, the LNG report is on the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives website. Okay. Uh, BC Carbon's Carbon Conundrum. Yes. Uh, yeah, a lot of my reports are been published by the Post Carbon Institute in Oregon and the U.S. Okay. Uh, so th those, there's quite a few reports that, at the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. I've just finished another one looking at the full cycle uh, issues with the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, which will be published probably in September. Okay. So people should keep an eye out for that. I mean, it you know, it won't make you feel very good, but. Uh. Well, certainly I, I was going to ask you on that one and I, and I decided uh, for sort of time's sake to, to leave it. Um, and certainly, you know, when you mentioned that uh, we shouldn't be uh, investing in any more oil and gas infrastructure, you know, clearly the Trans Mountain uh, flies in the face of that recommendation. Well, yeah, it does. Definitely. You know, I mean, it's the same, same thing, right? Uh, we're increasing environmental risks. We're incentivizing more oil production. You know, if you look at Canada's oil and gas sector overall, and you compare it to an 80% emissions reduction by 2050 target, and you look at the latest Canada Energy Regulator forecast, you know, even if we had a cap on the oil sands emissions at a hundred megatons, which is legislated in Alberta. 
uh, you know, the BC oil and or the the oil and gas sector in Canada as a whole would exceed that emissions target by 81 percent in 2050. If we don't put a cap on the oil sands, it'll exceed it by 101 percent. So, you know, we uh, we're going to have to bite the bullet. Uh, yes. Oil and gas production contributes to the Canadian GDP, but it contributes disproportionately to Canadian emissions. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to look at the facts and, uh, you know, act accordingly. Absolutely. Well, David, let's look to circle back in September then when that report is issued and uh, maybe we can go through that in detail and uh, inform the listeners of your conclusions from that report. Oh, yeah, sure. That'd be great. Excellent. All right, David. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I'll get uh, the uh, those links up onto the uh, the website there so people can take a look at the reports and, and go through the details. Uh, and once again, thank you so much for your time, sir. And uh, we'll be in touch in the future. Okay. Sounds good, Michael. Thanks Fantastic. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah. Bye-bye.